Jamie. Yes, Marianne. I'm a bit sad to tell you that this is the end of the Lovecraft show, as in there won't be any more seasons and there won't be any more episodes. That's bad news, I, particularly as I'm still in the Lovecraft show. What am I going to do now? Well, don't worry, because we've got a new show for all our crafty-loving listeners. It's going to be called Craft Talking. Guess who's going to be doing it? Who's going to be doing it? You! Hey! <laughs> oh, I can live on to be another day. I tell you what, it's very weird just being a disembodied voice that exists in a podcast. There are so many trapped in other podcasts that have pod-faded over time. But I can live on! In another area. I'm so excited now. Craft talking, you say? Craft talking. So it's going to be a fantastic new podcast with me and you. And we're going to talk to everybody and anybody. So people, listeners, don't forget to subscribe and find Craft Talking wherever you get your podcasts. That's Craft Talking without a G because we're so cool. See you there. Bye. Hey everybody, welcome to the Lovecraft Show. I'm Mr. H. Beach. And I'm Marion. Who have we got on the show today, Marion? Oh, you're going to love this guy. His name is Jake Hensler. Uh, you might know him as Boy Knits World. He's the most incredible knitter. He really is. Yeah, really impressed. I knew nothing about knitting. Some people say I still don't. Three series in of the Lovecraft show. But I'd never seen anything quite like Jake's knitting before. If you haven't seen Jake's fantastic work, have a look on Instagram, Boy Knits World. Um, Boy and all... underscore knits underscore world. Yeah, we talk about that, don't we? Yeah, we <laughs> There's do. another guy. <laughs> How could there be two Boy Knits World? I don't know. But anyway, you're need to know about one boy knits world boy i think they were like highlander right at some point they have a big knitting fight in a car park don't they and only one is left is that right? <laughs> there could be only one boy knits <laughs> there world. used to be 17 boy knits world jake is a tough guy jake is the only one there can be only one anyway he's absolutely incredible we love talking to him he's such an inspiration you're gonna love him too so find out all about jake enjoy the show we'll see you on the other side Cannibals would get treated a lot better if they referred to themselves as humanitarian. Boom! <laughs> That's much better. Do you, I, re- I rehearsed the laugh. Was that good? That was really yeah, good. That was good. <laughs> <laughs> Someone said, send me dad joke. Dad jokes at mrxditch.com. Please help me out. Help the nation. <laughs> so, welcome. Lovely Jake Hensler, all the way from Australia. Let's talk about knitting. Let's kick off, talk about knitting, because this is why we we want to interrogate you and find out all about your knitting skills, because these amazing, I mean, what what can we call them? They're kind of like like townscapes, housescapes. This, I mean, absolutely stunning. When I first saw your Copenhagen building blocks, the, you know the 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 amazing blanket that you made, and actually every time I see your things, firstly I think, crikey, what a stunning thing to knit. Secondly, I think, how is he so neat? And thirdly, I think, well, how can he be making something that big in a yarn that fine? What possessed you? And then fourthly, <laughs> what? She thinks he better not be a nice person because that's gonna be super annoying if he's a nice person as well. Of course, he's a nice person. What what started that? Tell us about your knitting journey yeah. and tell us about amazing. your these amazing blocks. The blanket, first of all, thank you. That's a lovely assessment of it. Um, 
The blanket, actually, I, I started making when I was living in um, Copenhagen. Uh, so I'm, I was I moved to Copenhagen for a year, um, took a, a bit of time off teaching and, and went over there, although I was still relief teaching when I was there. And um, I started out knitting a few different things with yarns I'd bought. And then I, I kind of got this idea that I wanted to make a, a souvenir blanket for the year that I was living there. Um, I sort of wanted something to remember the time by and to commemorate different elements of um, having lived there. And so I actually started by trying to make a couple of different buildings or, or uh, shop fronts from buildings that I went to often and quite liked so that I would always remember that particular place. And so I, I drew them out on grid paper and I, I had a pretty clear idea of what I wanted to do. But pretty quickly, I tried knitting out a few of those, a few of the buildings that I wanted to do. And the detail was just too much. I couldn't include everything that I wanted because it, it, although I technically knew how I wanted to do it, whenever I tried that, it was like I was running too many colors together or the details just confused one another and the eye got quite distracted. So in doing that, I got very frustrated and thought, well, I'm just going to try to do the simplest thing I can, and then I'll build up complexity from there. But in that process, I actually worked out that that simplest version was most of the patterns that I ended up with. Um, and so when I made them, I realized actually that simplicity was exactly what I, I wanted it to look like. I just hadn't thought of it in those terms. And then I think I posted a few photos soon after I had started that and there was a really positive response on my account and um, people were asking for the patterns and I thought, well, it's not, it won't be too difficult to write it up as patterns. Um, and then it just sort of snowballed from there. I, I did more and more of them. I wasn't sure how the whole, how big the whole thing would be. And then uh, I guess the more I made, the more I realized I wanted to make and uh, eventually got sick of it and decided that will be enough and started sewing them together. The colours actually, the, the yarn itself, you mentioned the fine yarn. Four-ply I don't think, I know a lot of people prefer to work with eight-ply in terms of it being a bit more visible and a little less fiddly, but the four-ply, particularly in cotton, is really I find very easy to work with. Um, so there was a really lovely range of colours that I found and I think that was what got me the most when I, I saw this range of colours and I thought I don't know what I want, what I can make with all of these or what I want to make with all of them but it's going to be something and it has to be all of them together. Yeah, because the colourscape is just beautiful. I mean, absolutely. I would have been the same, Jake, if I'd have seen that. I'd have just... When you go into a yarn store and Jamie, I don't know if you're like this with thread. You might be like this with thread or you might used to have been like this thread before you were hardened to thread um but <laughs> there is this sort of moment where you you go into a yarn store or you see like a range and your knees go because the, the colors are so incredible before I was a knitter I don't think I realized how important color was to me actually I mean I've always really liked color but I don't think I realized how profoundly it affected me so I totally understand that Jake because I, I would have been the same yeah. I think it's fascinating right because I've seen there's a guy called Jerry Kane who on Etsy I think he's called Pixel Dundee and he's done pictures of buildings from Dundee in cross stitch right and the thing with cross stitch is it's quite straightforward because you've got an existing grid so it's not a stretch to kind of do architectural stuff because it's already kind of square and stuff like that yeah. and and your work obviously reminds me of his because you've pixelated it but you've done it in knitting <laughs> and to me that just like, like blows my mind because it's like the arithmetic and the structure of it and all those sorts of things so I'm well aware of as you said distilling an image down to its simplest form 
But then you've gone and like intarsied it as well. Oh, it's just uh, uh, the back. This is the thing. Everybody go and look at Jake's Instagram. We'll put a link on the show notes. There is a picture on there of the back of the work. Now, anybody who's done intarsia knows that, well, if you like my intarsia, it's a big mess on the back. Jake's, no. Super neat. It's as beautiful on the back as it is on the front. So... This is, I thank you again. That's a lovely compliment. But uh, first of all, the pictures that you're seeing are taken at some distance, so you're not getting a full <laughs> close-up of the complexity that's going on there. It looks a little bit neater from a distance. But also, I think part of the design principle that I was going for, you know, I was saying reducing the, the blocks down to their simplest form, and part of that design process involved knowing that it, it would require the switching of colours at particular points. So at most points in each of the blocks, you're only using two, or at most, you're only using two uh, different colours. So although it looks like it's lots of carrying colour work, if you design it right, then you're only switching at key points and then you're never really carrying too many colours together. Um, So although it looks like lots of consideration, actually you're going one row at a time anyway. So you stop at the end of a couple of rows and you need to switch so it makes sense to be stopping then anyway. Um, oh, yeah. do you have do you plot it out on paper? Yeah, so originally I did, I think, draw a, a few of blocks out on paper, and then I quickly realised that because that meant repeating a lot of elements over and over, it would probably be quicker to do it on the computer. I do, that was, so do I, you know what? That was why I said it. I went, wait a minute, they've got these computers now. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. So, you do, I mean, do you plot it out? Do you have? And again, this is my ignorance. I have computer software for doing cross stitch patterns. Do you use is there knitting software then? Oh, there might That's be, uh, but say, isn't it? not really. No, no. Um, I know that there there are programs that other people use for that sort of thing. Um, and I think if you, there must be software where you can create a single a single part of the design and have it repeat, because a lot of knitting design is about repeated motifs. We're in cross stitch. I think. I mean, there are repeated motifs in cross stitch, right? But I think a lot of highly specialized cross stitch is about the the whole image whereas in knitting you're often repeating particular images to get a larger panel but i actually use a google sheet now so in google sheets you which is just like excel spreadsheets you can do really easy conditional formatting this is going to get really boring for anybody who doesn't like spreadsheets but conditional formatting lets you tell the spreadsheet every time i type the a particular letter or a particular symbol into a cell color it this color or do like this formatting to it so you can essentially get every almost every key on your keyboard to produce a different color in the spreadsheet and then you if if you put all of the all of if a for example is a bright red and you later decide you don't want it to be that bright red you can just tell it or change all a's to a different color so it's really great references in there you know like in the same way as you can you know because you can kind of go right you know like say with a paint box thread you know, you can go, it's this color, but it's this hex reference, which is kind of like the online version, isn't it? So you can actually, if you're working with, say, three different blues, you don't just have to choose the three that Google's given you. Yeah, um, I'm, I'm going to look it up right now for you because that's an interesting question. <laughs> um, you, there's a, you can choose from a whole range of colors. Yeah, there's a hex reference. That's so smart, though, isn't it? Because the conditional formatting is a neat trick because I know people that make cross-stitch patterns using Excel and they shrink the columns and they get it all right. But to me, it still seems quite arduous, whereas you've got no keyboard shortcuts, mate. I'm just going to go A, B, C, A, B, C, A, B, C, and it will colour it whichever direction you want. 
Yeah, and the great thing is if you've programmed it, so let's say you do a, a section and say treat all lasers red and you've got a particular motif but you want the motif to repeat, you can just highlight the part that you've drawn, copy it, click into the next cell over, paste it, or the letters paste and the motif copies. So you can reproduce it as big as, as many times as you want and just zoom out to see what it's going to look like. So I often test um, motifs that I'm working on and then sort of draw out, look at the whole thing together and say, is that going to look good as a knitted product? And actually a lot of the time, maybe it spoils it, I don't know, but it also satisfies that urge to need to see the thing that I'm imagining completed without actually having to knit it. <laughs> so if I don't like it, then I haven't got all the trouble. <laughs> oh, it's absolute genius. It really is. It makes my brain hurt, but I love it. <laughs> Any numbers? I like yeah, it. I love it. So when did you and it, when did you start knitting? And why did you start knitting? So I, I learned, I think, when I was very young. My mum taught me. But then when I was maybe about 19, um, I started knitting again. Um, I'd seen a couple of knitted things and I, I thought, I think I can make that. Um, and so I got mum to show me again how to do it. And then I yeah made a few things, a couple of um, toy patterns that I quite liked, um, animal, sort of animal-like shapes and a few scarves, I think. I sort of went from there. It's such a satisfying thing to do, Nit. I mean, I know we all have our crafts and we all like whichever crafts we like. But I, I mean, I love knitting and I love crochet. My son is a great knitter. He loves knitting. Um, but his crochet is not very good. Whereas my daughter, she's like super crochet, much prefers that because it's very fast and rewarding. And I love the fact that we're passing these skills on so that lots of people are sort of taking them up and carrying on, you know, and enjoying them. Do you find it's, is it a meditative thing for you? Is it some, is it relaxing? Or I guess, because if you're designing as well, do you ever knit just for relaxation or is it very much a sort of a design thing? I do find it meditative. Um, I do a lot of thinking when I'm knitting because my brain is on the work, but it's also a way of, I think I must have a very busy mind. And so it's a way of channeling one thing that my mind is doing while letting me think about a few other things in the background. I think that's what a lot of people who, who do any kind of craft experience. Um, but it obviously, if I'm getting, if I'm working on a particularly difficult thing, my focus is pulled a bit more tightly into it. Or if it's a pattern or something that I haven't knit before, or if it's got some complexities to it, I'm making a um, jumper at the moment for my very small niece and it's got cabling in it. And so once every 10 rows, I've really got to pay attention yeah. to where I put the cabling needle in, got the stitches right. But on the other rows, I can relax. Um, yeah. Just can't watch anything with subtitles at the moment. I've said that to people in the past, though, that like if you've got a lot on your mind, one of the smart things you can do is sit down and do some cross-stitch and then go, all right, brain, like sort yourself out, get a notepad, stick it by your side and just let the thoughts bubble to the surface. Because if they bubble and you write them down, you can kind of get them out. And it is funny how the use of whichever hemisphere of your brain it is, you use that one doing the mechanical thing and then the more esoteric side just, yeah, comes up with all these ideas. Yeah, not if you've got to go, not if you've got to do counted cross-stitch. Oh, that just blows my head off. I can't do No, have, even no, that. I can't do it. <laughs> I can't go, I can't move my head from chart to work, chart to work, no. I can't do it. With Intarsia, if I'm knitting something and it's got a picture or something, that that's okay because it's a small amount of just, you know, moving backwards and forwards. But there seems to be some sort of spatial problem <laughs> in my head where I can't go 
backwards and forwards, like seven green, two blue. So, oh, well. what you have to do sometimes? Some people put like like sort of running stitches every ten rows and columns on the fabric as well. So they'll just weave a single strand of a different color through to make the grid look a bit more obvious on the fabric, so it matches on the chart, and that is often a bit easier for doing the the visual of it. But in the same way as I will never pick up a knitting needle, lest oh come you know, on, may the fate strike me down. Come <laughs> on, know. yes you will. Never. You will. But the thing that I was I observe from your Instagram, which is obviously the entire story of your whole life, but um, <laughs> as you said, you start you started doing characters straight away. So you've almost like hit the ground running with some pretty technical stuff. Yes. Uh yeah. Um, I suppose so. It's although it's not. It's not incredibly technical. The characters that I started making were very, they were flat panel characters. So, And actually that's still largely what I do. The only technical thing about it is maybe working out how you make the, the shape as a flat panel. A lot of knitted uh, animals or stuffed toys that you can make out of knitting tend to be, a lot of knitters I think like a pattern that has as few cast-offs as possible and as few seams as possible. Nobody likes sewing things together when they're done. So a lot of really um, proficient patterns, essentially you cast on at one point and you'll do some casting off and you'll do some picking up stitches and you do lots of complex things along the way. But the, the goal always seems to be in those patterns, uh, don't cast off fully until you're absolutely done. It should only be one panel for the character or for the, for the whole piece. And although I really appreciate the technical skill that it takes to do that, um, I often find that the easiest path is to make a series of flat panels, do lots of sewing together, and then sort of piece the the character together as I go. Yeah, I'm with you, Jake. That's my favourite. I much prefer that. It also means you get to pick the placement of things like limbs or the head. Like you can, you can sort of position it just right rather than relying on wherever it happens to have fallen in the pattern. But, yeah, I appreciate it. It's it, Everybody approaches those things slightly differently. Yeah, I quite like sewing up. That's the thing. I quite, I know lots of knitters really hate sewing up, but I love that. Mm. And I think... Why do they really hate it? They, they do hate it. A lot of people really hate the sewing up. It's just, yeah, but, but let's look into that. Why is I don't know. I think it's really enjoyable, the sewing up. But, you know, it's a thing. It is a big thing. Yeah, a big thing. One of the things I think people... Um, quite dislike about things like blankets where you're making multiple panels is sewing all of those panels together. Lots of people who um, contact me about making the patterns that I design say that they would rather knit them, for example, a, a series of building blocks as a long row. So they'll cast on one building block at the bottom and they'll knit it because they're all knit from bottom to top. So they'll knit bottom to top, but then when they get to the top of that building, they start the next building that they want to knit so they knit a series of like long scarves essentially and then they only have to sew together the scarves rather than sewing together block to block on top to bottom, side to side. Is it a tension thing or something? No. I think that people who like, who enjoy knitting for the process of knitting, I think are quite frustrated at the thought that they have to spend any time on the project that doesn't involve knitting. Yeah. So if you can reduce any sewing time, any sewing time and maximize knitting time on the project that's that's always seen as a win i think there are probably a lot of cross stitchers out there who would agree with you that it's it's that the stitching part it should be pleasurable there's i mean there's a there's a bit of like you know like ironing it who can be bothered to do that i mean you know i'm not saying that this is a weird anomaly i just wondered whether it is you know because i can see that sometimes you can make a thing and 
as you're knitting it, it looks wonderful. Or like if you're making a shirt and you put the pieces of a shirt together, but the the angle's slightly wrong or suddenly it doesn't quite fit and it's and your beautiful dream is distorted. And I can see how that's quite painful. But if it's just that it's a bit fiddly to have to be doing all of this sort of stuff. I do think as well that there is a point though, Jamie, in that because the finishing, if you're making a garment, for example, the finishing is just as much a part of the knitting in the sense of like, if your finishing skills aren't very good, so if you're not very good at sewing up, some people just don't really, really, really don't like it. You can spoil all the knitting that you've done by bad finishing. And that is a thing. So I understand a lot of people prefer to not knit things separately and sew them up because then you don't have the trauma of a bulky seam and things like that. Yeah. And it can be very obvious when knitted garments are sewn badly. Uh, yeah, badly. Yeah. <laughs> if, it, <laughs> if, it's not, it. if it's not done stitch for stitch, then people kind of feel that all of the other knitting work has sort of come to nothing. Is there something in the fact then that, say, if you make a jumper, you might do 10,000 knitted stitches for the sake of argument and about... 15 bits of sewing stitch like proportionally you're going to be so much better at knitting than you are at sewing that it's quite easy for a gap in your skill set to appear oh yeah is that part of the problem do you think people just don't do it enough yeah Yeah, absolutely your characters your little amigurumis a lot of them have names and narratives and stories and stuff now i think some of them are the names of other people but is this part of the process where you start making a thing and after a while you go, ah, his name is Espadule Fortescue? <laughs> uh, sometimes, yeah. Sometimes it happens as I'm making the character. Um, but sometimes I will set out from the beginning knowing the character that I'm making. Um, it really depends on what I've decided to be doing. Yeah, it, I, I make fewer characters. I have made fewer characters recently where I didn't know what they would be. It tends to be a bit more deliberate. I think that's maybe just because I've been focusing a bit more on blankets and patterns. So the knitting characters for pleasure just just out of inspiration has been a little less frequent. Do you know, Jake, we were talking before we came on about the fact that we're just waiting for Netflix to come along and animate all your characters. Because it's <laughs> <Yeah>. like... <laughs> You've made the building. They're so beautiful. They're so... They're so full of life and sort of stories. And it's like you've got your English teacher hat on, you're a writer and you're creating stories of characters in yarn. And they are so charming and lovable. Have you ever thought about sort of having those, you know, in a book or stories or? Um, I would love to. That would be wonderful. For me, it's a bit more about the idea coming to me and then executing the idea. I, I really do like having a brief to work to, so something that I kind of produce the the work for. Um, but a lot of the time, that's not really there. That I have to come up with that myself. And if the if I haven't got a fully fleshed out idea, it's a bit more about I'll, I'll finish a single scene of a character doing something in particular. When I'm, I made the um, pattern for the uh, monogram needle book, which is a knitted pattern that you keep sort of sewing needles in. And um, when I first finished it, I thought it's a very, it's it's quite a large book for a small character. And so I've got a lot of the characters around me when I'm knitting, not, not sort of deliberately just walking around. (laughs) They're not, they're not sitting in their own chairs or anything. And uh, the, the size of the book by comparison to the characters just seemed like it seemed, although it's a tiny little book for me, it's a very, very big book for these characters. And so then this idea of, well, what would one of the characters be doing with that book? 
evolved into it's obviously some kind of spell book if it's that large it's got to have some significance and so um yeah i did a a version of the book as a spell book for one of the characters who was then obviously had to have a series of pieces that that made her dressed up as a witch so it's it's one one thing will lead to several other things so magnum opus in about 20 years time suddenly where's anderson to be like right i haven't done an animated film for a while It'll be like, ah, there you are. There's all your work. You know, it's, it's the Venn diagram is complete at that point, right? Um, one of the things we really wanted to talk to you about as well is that you're a designer, but you're an artist. So you're a textile artist. Well, I mean, how do you see yourself? Because as you just said, you present ideas that they come to you. And one of the things I observe is that you you make pieces and it's kind of like you're not necessarily being commercially driven. You're being like content driven. You're making the things that come to mind, which to me seems like you're in, you're having an artistic path. Yes. That path is quite deliberate in the sense that um, I try not to be driven too much by what I think will sell, which I guess is a bit of a luxury as well that, you know, a lot of people would um, probably see that as a really important opportunity to commercialize something that they feel that they can which you know makes a lot of sense um i d- i don't have that as a, a restriction on the way that i work because i also have a full-time job I, I do other things and so i because a part of what i make is about not thinking about work um it's, it needs to be something creative that isn't bound by a need to make or some kind of external demand, if that makes sense. Mm. Um, in terms of the artistic I I find that a really difficult question for myself because there are times, I mean, well, what, first of all, the difference between craft and art is a, a very difficult thing to establish yes. and a pretty contentious thing. Um, and a lot of people would argue a non-existent thing, but I guess I don't really feel any need to answer the difference. And so for me, it's a bit more about the context in which things are being presented. A lot of the things that I'm, that I put on my Instagram and that I make are made with a particular intention or a particular feeling, whatever it is I'm driven by. A lot of them are just gifts for people. And so it's a bit more creative. And I think a lot of that reads as craft, but then yeah, there are a couple of instances where those objects are taken out of that context and put into other contexts where they begin to read like art or at least objects for artistic consideration. Um, but then they're not really different objects just because of the context they're in. Um, so I try not to, to worry too much about what I think the objects are or, or where they fit, but I try to think about them as things that represent something for me and if in another context that is artistic or reads as artistic, that's great. Yeah. It, it, yeah. I try not to let that affect what I think about it. Some of the pieces are a bit more deliberately high concept. So things like the blanket, um, the Copenhagen blanket and, and a couple of the other pieces similar to it, they're, they, they're a bit more folk art in the sense that they're about particular imagery and using that imagery to evoke particular senses and experiences that people really connect with. And that, that is a form of art, but it's not um, high concept art necessarily. And then some of the pieces that I, that I make, like the piece um, for Dog Days, um, is, are a bit more deliberately high concept. Mm. 
uh, one, I mean, it's for you to judge if you think it's high concept, but <laughs> I was going for yes. something a little bit more uh, interesting and a bit more narrative driven and um, it, it's sort of making a bit more of a point. I completely understand what you're saying because the problem is, is if you start to say I'm making art, suddenly it's bound up in politics and it's bound up in a, you know, societally driven value storyline. Yeah. And the fact that you said yours is folk art is exactly kind of what I was thinking because folk art is like people just making stuff for the sake of it. It's like art without the bullshit. And the bullshit is the stuff <laughs> that makes art like successful and high and valuable. But you can see exhibitions of folk art and you can see exhibitions of brute art, you know, people with no artistic talent who are just making things for the sake of it. And that's the art. It's just about making things and telling, you know, you producing something out of thin air. It's like magic. Yeah. And so I appreciate your struggle because what you don't want to do, like you're keeping it kind of pure. Without talking too much about keeping it pure, but yes. Because <laughs> it's, it's all that sense. I don't, I don't want to overthink. I overthink lots of things. Um, I am somebody who does that as a bit of a habit of life. And so this just needs to be something that I don't overthink too much. I, spend a, I probably overthink the design elements of it, but I try not to overthink the elements that are about what, what the objects represent. Do you find that it's quite good to go lofty periodically you know because it's it's almost like say your your buildings are, are a little bit more like design do you know what yeah. I mean it's an appreciation of a form you're doing it without judgment you're just sort of recreating a thing and in some ways as you can see because they're on Ravelry and stuff there's a sort of more of a popular consumption of those things sure uh, kind of well, so is there a nice sort you can, of, yeah they're is, patterns you can buy is there a sort of seesaw that you get between one-offs and sort of more common pieces yes i suppose so it does tend to depend on the like i say the context that they're being made for so in the case of the dog days exhibition i was invited to be a part of an exhibition and i knew that i was making a piece in response to a particular work that the gallery had bought for their collection so the piece that i was making had a kind of brief to be i mean they didn't say it has to be high concept but i guess i knew that the context that the piece was being made for was sort of allowed for that level of thinking to sit beneath have the to be piece, able to talk about sense. it like this yeah i've got to talk about it <laughs> like right. this I, I did an exhibition voice. once and i immortalized spam emails in cross stitch because i was immortalizing the periphery the frippery of the internet do you know what it's, like? it's that thing isn't it yeah that's beautiful <laughs> <laughs> Just carry on going sorry. back to the patterns briefly just i love the grand hotel tell us about that because that is just beautiful it's it's obviously modeled on um wes anderson's grand budapest hotel which is just an incredible piece of cinema and there is something really stunning about the way that the story of the, the entire film threads through this particular building and I think because I had already been making images of buildings, I, you know, I was saying before about reducing the pattern down to its simplest form. Well, one, the only thing you can do once you've got what you think is the simplest form is to start building more complexity and that doesn't break the simplicity, right? Yeah. There's a decorativeness to, to the Grand Budapest Hotel. And I was hoping to build in some of that decorativeness, but using some of the principles of simplicity of the pattern. So when I started designing it, I just got addicted to this idea that I would be able to do to represent a really faithful version of the hotel that would also be relatively straightforward to knit. It also was a bit of a, um, an exercise in testing out the patterns doing something that I hadn't done with them before. Um, so that one is knitted instead of, instead of being as individual 
short rectangles. It was knitted as three tall pieces, so the bottom half and then the top half. So you've got three that you sew together along two seams. But yeah, I think actually it's not dissimilar to the characters that I make in a sense. You know, I was saying before about there's there's often a bit of a narrative that comes with the characters, that the character speaks to a lot larger story. And I think that's why I liked the Grand Budapest Hotel, because although it's a building, it is also a kind of character that has a story to it. Yeah, yeah. It's a really good introduction to Intosha, to do blocks, to work in in a squarish sort of rectangular format where you haven't got too much shaping until you get to these like to the, to the to the grand hotel where there is more detail to do but if anybody's thinking of doing these patterns i would definitely encourage them to do it if you haven't done intosha before because it's a relatively like you say it's a sort of simplistic way of learning intosha too because you're just doing blocks yeah and where you're doing the windows um which is a, a large portion of each of the buildings, as I suppose is true of most buildings. Uh, you are doing the the you're changing color at the same spot, and you're carrying color for the same number of stitches consistently. So with a lot of color work, that's it's quite the opposite. You kind of switch colors very deliberately in different parts in different rows, so that you minimize the amount of twisting you have to do. But with these block patterns, the twist often will fall. On the knit row in the same place and on the um, purl row in that is every time you're doing a knit row it will fall in the same place and every time you're doing a purl row it will fall in the same place but they're never the same place on the knit and purl because then you get the bit that shows through but it's you kind of it's very easy to build a twisting rhythm which won't make any sense to anybody who doesn't knit, do much color great. work but if yeah it, it um i can't think of the equivalent for cross stitch but it, it would be like knowing that there's a particular point where you take the colour from one part of the piece over to another part of the piece uh, where you're going to hide it behind the work and there's sort of you you have to have a bit of an intuition for when that should happen and then when you bring it back or you might just, I don't know, maybe you tie it behind and snip it. But you... It's probably similar. Like if you've got two patches of the same colour on a pattern, sometimes you try and find the smallest jump space between the two. You know, if, you yeah. know it is that thing. Like you said, it's just the intelligence of the design, right? Right. And so if you can design it so that the if you were doing something that had a really regular color pattern, then you would kind of find a regular spot where you would pass the thread behind with, for the shortest passage behind and you do it the same on each one. It's a similar thing for the mm. for the twisting. It's about working out the best spot to hide, to make it invisible that you're doing something. With the Grand Budapest Hotel, because I'm looking at it now, and it's a cushion cover pattern, mm. does it come with a sort of support group? I mean, do you have people who I feel like you've got to be pretty brave because it's an it's a remarkable design. Like it really oh, is. But you, you must have to be brave to have a go at it. And you must get some people who are overjoyed that they've made it right. It should look more complex than it is. So the techniques that you need to use to complete the pattern are actually much more simple than it looks like they would be. And I know that will sound like a bit of a cop out to people who don't do color work because you say, well, it's not simple. Well, once you get the hang of a little bit of color work, you realize if you're only carrying two colors at any one point, you're actually not doing anything awfully complex. It's it's relatively straightforward. And so although the designs do look like they've got lots of little elements feeding in, and at parts it does get a bit fiddly, most of it is is just a bit of an illusion. And if you've done one of the other buildings first, and then yeah. you do... So presumably you say to people, start with Sydney terraces. Sydney terraces, <laughs> small... 
a little bit higgledy-piggledy, good to get going. Then when you're confident with your window placement, Copenhagen building blocks, then bottle of whiskey, Grand Hotel. <laughs> Is that right? I should... Yeah, I should have like a complexity chart, like start here and work your way up. And I would venture actually that the back of the Grand Hotel pattern is harder mm. than the front. Is it? What is that design? Is that based on like one of the carpets or something? It feels like carpet, doesn't it? It's, mm. um, it's not, uh, but I wanted it to feel like upholstery. I yeah. wanted it to feel mm. like an object so that it was like the back of a cushion that could have been in, in the, hotel. the Grand Budapest Hotel. Well, looking at the pattern, I know that I would find the front easier in the sense that I, it's, it's sort of like separate chunks or whatever. My Always my issue is when it's something that looks more like Fair Isle down there, it's my usual chart trauma of going backwards and forwards so i think <laughs> i i know i'd find the front easier than the back but i love absolutely love it what i love is as well that there are all these little thought out clever details that add to the delight of a pattern do you feel that you've got any other buildings on the horizon you going a bit frank lloyd Wright on us or uh... yeah it's a really good question um when I finished the Copenhagen building blocks, I was actually so done with making building blocks, with making that pattern that I thought I might never knit a building block again. And then time passed and, of course, I thought, oh, maybe I could just knit a few more because I maybe I'll make, I could use the pattern to make another version of the pattern, just a smaller one where I test out using a more limited colour palette. So I did that and then I thought, but never again. And then I thought, oh, maybe maybe I'll make a baby blanket. Just I'll try that. And so I did. And then eventually I made the Amsterdam building blocks. Um, a lot of people were actually mistaking the Copenhagen image for Amsterdam. And there are a lot of similarities in the buildings, um, both historically and just visually. But people were saying, it's, this would make a great Amsterdam. You should make Amsterdam. And an opportunity came up. Um, to make a commission and it happened that the person who who was getting the commission wanted something like Amsterdam so I said what about Amsterdam (laughs) and uh, that's what we went with so then I moved on to doing a different style of building and again because I had a drive to do it I I sort of put the energy in made those pieces and and then I by the time I finished I said never blocks again never (laughs) and then a year or so passed and I decided, actually, what if I made the Grand Budapest Hotel? <laughs> and happened again with the Sydney Terraces. I'm sure maybe in 18 months or so I'll have forgotten what it took to make the Sydney Terraces and I'll think, Ooh. maybe I could make something else. <laughs> I'm the same with very large pizzas. Often I'll eat a very large pizza and think, I'm not going to do that again. And then in about yeah. two to four days I'm like, <laughs> I could eat another very <laughs> yeah. much. Do you know, funnily enough, I'm a bit like that with ice cream. Now, the other thing I wanted to say was socks. So this is your first year of knitting socks. Socks for an adult. Socks for an adult. Yes. Okay. And on on double-pointed needles, did you do the whole thing on double-pointed needles? Yes. Wow. So are you not a magic loop guy? I am very much not a magic loop guy. <gasps> um, now... This is, I'm not, I don't object to other people's use of a magic loop. Um, if that is what brings them pleasure and satisfaction to do, that I, I would not get in the way of that. But uh, I find the magic loop 
uh, a bit irritating to recreate every time I get to that point in the road. Yeah. Um, and I just, I also feel like there's something about using four needles to hold the stitches on a sock that gives you this really perfect um, design for the sock. So you know that there's where two needles meet on one side is one side of the sock, where two needles, needles meet on the other side is the other side of the sock. And the midway point for each side is the where the other two needles meet, not needles meet. I can kind of track the design around the sock as I knit if I use the four needles. Yeah, it's just, it's this is another thing, Jamie. This is another sort of... Um knitting things sort of like we're hitting all the nerves we are people who love double pointed needles people who love anyone needs to stop and have a quick cup of tea (laughs) a little walk about come back (laughs) to the conversation i understand um and that's easier if you're using double double pointed needles i'm a i'm a magic loop girl but i i have lots of conversations about these things with debbie bliss who's a very lovely knitwear designer who who is part of lovecrafts and we always have this thing about tension being completely different on a circular than it is on a straight needle. So we, we think that if you're knitting on a circular needle with a cable, that you the tension is looser than if you're knitting on a straight needle. So I think that's the thing about socks as well. Presumably, your tension is going to be a little bit tighter on those double-pointed needles than it would be on a magic loop. Yes, I think that's, I think that's absolutely right. It's an architectural question. Like this is all engineering, and now I'm getting a thing in my head where there's somewhere there's an overlap with you creating possibly a lighthouse. <laughs> there is a sock. Do you see what I mean? Because it's kind of like somewhere there's like a building that's a circular building that's like a tube, possibly, and I can see there's a it's things leading together like that. Because it is. It's all, this is all engineering, right? Yeah. Sure. I mean, the only problem with the lighthouse sock idea is I'm sure the internet already has it, no. right? You, no. uh, I reckon, Google it now. Lighthouse sock, you'll find <laughs> it. Lighthouse sock. Somebody oh, will have made a lighthouse sock somewhere. and it will be a beautiful sock that where the foot is, you know, the promontory that the lighthouse sits on the, and then the, the leg is going to be oh the Oh, my God. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's some here. This is the thing about knitters. C's for the toes, the heel is the rock. People, knitters, this is what they do, Jamie. They just uh, recreate anything and anything in yarn. And it's beautiful, isn't it, Jamie? I'm not looking at it, but I know it is. So what's next? What's What's on the horizon? I don't really know. Like I said, I'm working on a jumper at the moment for my niece um, for her birthday. So you've recently finished another jumper, haven't you? That kind of uh, grey and oh, it's a mulberry. It's a beautiful, very lots of colour work jumper. Gorgeous. I think that one really struck me because it's it's got that sense of the Nordic sweater with the that star, the half star design that's repeated across it. Um, the original colours are white or sort of cream and red, um, which is really lovely. But I just wanted something a little bit. A little bit different than the pattern. Is there a book forming in the back of your mind? Would you be interested in doing a book? Do you think you're ready to do a book? Yeah, well, I'd absolutely love to. I think what I'd really love to do, I would have really loved to have made the um, the Copenhagen building block patterns into a book. I think it would be possible to incorporate really beautiful photographs of the city and buildings in the city um, alongside the patterns and alongside um, maybe some story around experience of the city because there's so much about evoking the sense of place that I think that would work really well as a 
as an idea. I did actually publish a book of patterns or a booklet of patterns um, many years ago, um, which was a, a series of toys called Little and Friends, and they're quite small toy patterns, and they were designed really for beginner knitters, and they were flat panel patterns that kind of gave you an experience of a few techniques sewing together, but they weren't too difficult or long to make. Um, and that was quite successful, I think. Um, but that was through an Australian um, yarn distribution company who also publish uh, pattern books. I think it's time for a new book. Not, you might not have time, but gorgeous Intarsha <laughs> colour workbook. If people want to check out your work, boy underscore knits underscore world on Instagram, is that the best place to find you? Yes. Uh, I think that's probably the most comprehensive list of, of um kind of projects that I've been working on and it's got a link to my Ravelry there as well so I think that's the best place. Well I am just thrilled to bits to have met you Jake and to have heard all about all of your work and everything that's coming up it's just a delight and I just want everybody to go and look at your gorgeous patterns because they're so clever and just a delight to knit I'm sure. Thank you so much for coming to chat to us today. Thanks very much for having me. So, Marion, what book are we looking at today, please? Today we're looking at Contemporary Crochet from Liv Huffman. Now, this one is a book not for the faint-hearted. <laughs> this lady, she's, she's fantastic. She's a fashionista beyond all fashionistas. So she is, I would like you to sort of think of it as maybe slightly punky, slightly sort of couture, fashion. She's doing with crochet all the things that if you were like a really expressive teenager, you really would dream of doing with crochet. You can find her on Instagram. She's a little bitty Livy, L-I-V-I-E. And to me, it feels a bit like you'll, you'll be in tune with this, Mary. And you know how there was like punk and then there was post-punk where people took punk ideas and then kind of reappropriated them. I feel like there's like Granny Square... And then there's post Granny Square and that's where Liv's at because she's almost like going, here's stuff that's gone on before and she's spinning it out for an alternative crowd. Yes, that's exactly right. I, mean, I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, she's Thanks. I'm going to go now. <laughs> she's taken basic crochet and Granny Squares and made them super hyper fashionable but the process the actual sort of technical work behind this is pretty simple so it's the sort of stuff that if you're new to crochet you can pick up easily and get this fantastic result now one of the things that that, that you strikes you first when you get into these the patterns are all beautifully written you've got all the details and everything is in clear step by step but say for example there is something called the harry cardigan and this is the cardigan that started everything off, the sort of patchwork Harry Styles cardigan. The pattern is in here. There's a pattern in here. Liv's design is based on the original Harry Styles cardigan, which is the right. sort of patchwork coloured cardigan that he was so famous for wearing. And so if you kind of think that's the vibe, sort of Harry Styles meets a bit of punk. So it's sort of almost you can... Make it your own. You can pick your own colours. There are lots and lots of pairs of crocheted shorts 
Mm. that are made with granny stitches um for the summer is there a particular type of wool that you is you're gonna like would you go a mohair on that so that it's nice and comfy i've never worn knitted shorts let alone <laughs> knitted swimming trunks you what, you definitely... despite the people asking i've never done that you would never ever wear mohair shorts that would just drive you crazy <laughs> the, the yarns that are recommended through the book are sort of lower cost acrylic yarns so they're things that you can make without spending a fortune you can wash them all it's a it's a very accessible book in that respect so if you're new to crochet and you don't want to spend out loads and loads of money the the yarn recommendations in here are great it feels to me like that's that's the one of the selling points i guess isn't it is she's making almost like high fashion approaches but she's doing it simply like I don't know crochet but I can look at the designs and see that there is a simplicity there and I guess that makes it accessible right because you run a risk of of it being out of the reach for the beginner otherwise exactly and also the people that are going to want to wear these clothes and sort of like make these fantastic designs they're going to be young they're going to want quick results they don't want to spend hours with a two millimeter hook crocheting some flowers to put on the side they want something instant and that's why this really works there's a fantastic corset in here that you know there's like the peggy bag isn't there that's like two really big granny squares with a strap and an edge and stuff like that and it feels like you could probably bang that out on a weekend oh, if you put your mind totally to it. Or, or just a couple of hours there's a couple of there's a lot made out of granny squares here so there's like vests and jackets where you can sort of upgrade the colours to whatever you want it to be. And that's pretty cool, right? Because you don't need an entire ball of wool to do granny squares, right? You can use kind of what you've got. You can. I mean, you could if you wanted to, and that just sort of really make it your own. So you could use whatever you happen to have in your stash as long as it's the right weight. And most of the work, most of the projects in this book are all sort of like Aaron weight. So let's give it a mark out of 10 then. Bearing in mind that, as we know, this is the Mixed Direct Stitch Guide to Cross Stitch scale, where that's the only book that will ever get to 10 what are you going to give this i think i'm going to give this a seven and a half i'm going to give it a seven and a half which for me is a good one because i think liv has a fantastic eye for really modern really refreshing super different crochet and the fact that she's captured that sort of harry stylesian angle and it will encourage younger people to get their hooks out and dig in. So for that reason, I'm giving it a nice big seven and a half. Good job, Liv. Good job, Liv. We love it. 